And I should tell you, this is a rebroadcast. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday. January 10th, 2012. It's a brave new year, folks. You think 2011 was bleak? You ain't seen nothing yet. Who was it used to say that? Ronnie Reagan? The way I see it, we have no choice, folks. No choice. We must grasp the nettle. Bite the bullet. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> Why not enjoy ourselves? I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm so old. Optimism is all that's left for me, you know. What was it? Uh, Artie Schopenhauer, the old German philosopher, he used to say, we must live on and suffer. Anyway, it takes all my weeknights just to listen to all the satirical songs and watch all the absurdist news and read all the nonsense that pundits write, you know, uh, all those folks who want to save the world by analyzing it. The paralysis of analysis. Personally, I am so sick of listening to the talk about the economy See, economy, stupid. The job market. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Who the hell wants a job? Who wants to work for the man? Anyway, the misery index uh, just gives me a headache. Um, I think, most of all, it's the endless political horse race. Is there any place we can escape that? Uh... I'm ready to head out, head for the hills. Ah, Siberia. Ah, the Russian Arctic. <laughs> yes, if if the world is going to be a world without ice, uh oh, what a thought. I I'm glued to a television show about the Russian Arctic. Ah, it's called Wild Russia. I'm gonna buy it. It's on the Green Planet Channel. It's my sanctuary. I couldn't get along without the Discovery Channel, the Nature Channel, the National Geographic Channel. The Russian Arctic, it's twice the size of these United States. Oh, the Earth, you know, our Earth, this endless, eternal, aching old Earth. What a miracle, you know, the... Glorious, vast, the, the magic of it all. The globe offers us more, what is it, uh, more fun, more glory, more, more food, more wisdom, more brilliance and beauty, more of everything anybody needs, you know. Why on earth do we... Keep up this nonsense, all the chattering classes, fussing about socio-political 
good and bad. I, 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 I want to read you a little piece of Mark Twain on the damned human race. Now do that in just a minute, right? Uh, I just, uh, I just can't grasp what it is about our species, what it is that makes us waste our powers, all our energy. Talking about space programs and wars and weapons and all this nonsense, our pitiful death culture, frittering away all our resources and our strength, all our best efforts sucked up by by computers. Yes, talk about a brain drain devouring our children. Oh, God, the information age. Uh, I thought the industrial age was going to finish us, but the information age is a lot worse. Every day I thank the ancestors that I see a few, just a few, some of our children who get beyond the horrors of all that nonsense, this dark age of technology. There's a light glimmering somewhere, you know, at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it's it's the light that the kids see, those children who know that life is for living, not for spending or consuming. Uh, I remember Dick Gregory used to come to a school where I taught and tried to explain to the children that, you know, life is for living. He said that, you know, a job may be necessary, but it's not life. Consider the lilies of the field. Yes, they toil not. Stone Age men could survive on 15 hours a week. That was enough labor to get food on the table. I mean, they didn't need a table. Oh, Thomas Jefferson would weep to see the uh, state of affairs. I remember when I was young, we thought 40-hour week was way too much work. Mm, Thomas Jefferson told us that the farm, yes, the life of the farmer, because he was a gentleman farmer with bloody plantation, uh, but he had the right idea, you know. He, he thought it was the ideal of manhood, you know. Uh, your own, your own land. Well, of course, even that concept, uh, the concept of property. Oh, how do we make money funny? I know that destroying the monetary system is not in the cards, but that's where I would start. Uh, I was reading a wonderful, a wonderful essay last night that uh, explains that architecture was the beginning. No, ar- not architecture, agriculture. You know, uh, that was the beginning of the end because it stopped us being nomads and made us settle down in one place. And then there was this problem of property and then women became the first class. And anyway, I just keep thinking that if we could just not learn, but remember what it was we once knew, you know, hold opposing ideas in the mind and continue to function. If we could just be sensible socialists, you know, use uh, communism. Uh, well, I guess, what was it we used to say? If you don't believe in God, you might as well believe in communism. I think that cap 
capitalism is probably okay if you keep it down, you know, on a small scale, if you just got a little push cart, you know, it's the crony capitalism that's killing us. I think it's all linguistics. I have to define all these words. <laughs> anyway, what I wound up with last night after I got a headache was the poet W.H. Auden. He's the one, he said no, he said that it's uh, this problem of the human species. He said that our deepest desire, the deepest desire of every woman and every man is not for universal love, no, but to be loved alone. I always used to say, you know, a piece of the pie is all very well, but there is pie for everyone if we try. I'm trying to finish this book called The Selfish Gene, but I don't, what is it? I don't really understand it. Uh, I suppose it's what got us here. It's what got us to the 21st century but I don't think it's going to see us through it in my own selfish soul I have to admit I'm giving up these days I'm too old to fight I just go to the movies you know I pretend I'm looking for an answer in the arts yes culture vultures that's what I am a culture vulture I keep I keep pretending that aesthetics is the mother of ethics we can teach the young to modify their lives change our lives you know tenderize make the kids gentle uh, we are all full of the milk of human kindness you know uh, the truth is I'm uh, I'm like all the other critters I'm out for pleasure. That's what I want from the arts. I want the comforts of the world of fantasy. A world in which everything can be fixed. People wake up, get the picture. I remember all those plays that I did for all those years, for half a century, we thought. Theater was where we would learn. That was our school. We would build the better man, the wiser woman. Yes, Euripides, Shakespeare, Shaw, Ibsen. Drama is my religion. Theater, that's where we go to tame reality. Ah. That's just another illusion, of course. Uh, but it's a real illusion. Uh, <laughs> yes. Anyway, I want to read you this little piece of Mark Twain before I tell you about the the movies, because I was thinking that, uh, yes, <laughs> if you're a misanthrope like me, if you've begun to be... <clears throat> A little, uh, what is that? A little bit crotchety with age. Mark Twain is the perfect author. He got, he got grimmer and grimmer. I have a little book of his called uh, Letters from the Earth. A lot of Mark Twain was never published in his lifetime. Uh, there are some new books out, posthumous books, but actually a lot of his stuff did come out here and there. Letters from the Earth is basically letters from the devil written to um, 
God in heaven, right? And it's kind of a, a, a complaint about the human race. My favorite essay is The Damned Human Race. It's the one that I like because, as I say now, all I do is watch the nature channels. Uh, I just want to admire the other critters. Uh, uh, Twain says that he convinced himself that among the animals, man is the only one that harbors insults and injuries. Ah, uh, the passion of revenge is unknown to the higher animals, he says. <laughs> He's not absolutely right about that. We now know that chimps can be pretty mean, too, but he's got a point here, yes. Uh, Mark Twain says that cats are loose in their morals, but not consciously so. Man, he writes, in his descent from the cat, has brought the cat's looseness with him, but has left the unconsciousness behind that's the saving grace which excuses the cat. The cat is innocent. Man is not. Hmm. Indecency, vulgarity, and obscenity, these are strictly confined to man. He invented them. Among the higher animals, there's no trace of them. Hmm. The higher animals hide nothing. They are not ashamed. Man, with his soiled mind, covers himself. He will not even enter a drawing room with his breast and back naked. So alive are he and his mates to indecent suggestion. <laughs> Man is the animal that laughs. But as Mr. Darwin pointed out, so does the monkey. <laughs> no, man is the animal that blushes. The only one that does it or has occasion to. I don't know. I think Mark Twain is on to something here. Some people think that that's a higher development. Our consciousness, our self-consciousness. Gertrude Stein used to say that self-consciousness had replaced the soul. Now, that's a tough one. Uh, anyway, in this hilarious essay, The Damned Human Race, Twain goes on and on to have fun with... Uh, the higher, what he calls the higher animals, that's not us, uh, the critters. Uh, man, he says, is degenerate. <laughs> man, he says, is the only animal that deals in that atrocity of atrocities, war. And he goes on to define the ways in which we are happy to wipe out others of our species, um, rob people, our fellows, you know, of their countries. Man, he writes, is the only slave and the only animal, animal who enslaves. And then he goes on to say that man is the only patriot. You know, the one with the flag. Uh, <laughs> In the intervals between his campaigns, man washes the blood off his hands and works for the universal brotherhood of man with his mouth. Man is the religious animal. He is the only religious animal. He is the only animal that has the true religion. Several of them. <laughs> anyway, he goes on to explain the wisdom 
of the higher animals who have no religions whatsoever. Uh, let's see. The reasoning animal bit, yes, he says, that's just our claim. He says, it's open to dispute. His experiments, writes Mark Twain, prove to me that he is the unreasoning animal. Note his history. Not a reasoning animal, right. I consider that the strongest count against his intelligence is the fact that with the record back of him, he blandly sets himself up as the head animal of the lot, whereas by his own standards, he is the bottom one. In truth, writes Mark Twain, man is incurably foolish. Simple things which the other animals easily learn. He is incapable of learning. Among my experiments was this. In an hour, I taught a cat and a dog to be friends. Put them in a cage. In another hour, I taught them to be friends with a rabbit. In the course of two days, I was able to add a fox, a goose, a squirrel, and some doves. Finally, a monkey. They live together in peace, even affectionately. Next, in another cage, I confined an Irish Catholic from Tipperary, and as soon as he seemed tame, I added a Scotch Presbyterian from Aberdeen, next a Turk from Constantinople, a Greek Christian from Crete, an Armenian, a Methodist from the wilds of Arkansas, a Buddhist from China, a Brahmin from Benares, finally a Salvation Army Colonel from Wapping. Then I stayed away two whole days. When I came back to note results, the cage of the higher animals was all right, but in the other containing the human beings, so-called. There was but a chaos of gory odds and ends, bits of turbans and fezzes and plaids and bones and flesh, not a specimen left alive. These reasoning animals had disagreed on a theological detail and carried the matter to a higher court. (laughs) Anyway, Mark Twain goes on to uh, pinpoint what he calls a defect in our species. Ah. (laughs) He says that the defect is the moral sense, the only animal that has it, It is the secret of his degradation. It is the quality which enables him to do wrong. It has no other office. It is incapable of performing any other function. It could never have been intended to perform any other function. Without it, man could do no wrong. He would rise at once to the level of the higher animals. Anyway, he goes on. Oh, he goes on and on for paragraphs and paragraphs about man's moral sense 
Um, he calls it a primal curse. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. A primal curse, a moral sense. Uh, he says that, uh, Mark Twain says that the ability to distinguish good from evil, that's the moral sense. Uh, he says, with the moral sense, the ability to do evil, yes, that's it. Ah. Uh, that's it. There can be no evil act, he writes, without the presence of our consciousness of it in the doer of it. In other words, if we don't know we're being naughty, we're not. <laughs> he says that as man has descended and degenerated from some far ancestor, <laughs> some microscopic atom wandering at its pleasure between the mighty horizons of a drop of water, perchance. Yes. Insect by insect, animal by animal, reptile by reptile, down the long highway of smirchless innocence. Till now, he says, we have reached the bottom stage of development, nameable as the human being. Below us, nothing. Well, nothing but the Frenchman. <laughs> anyway, yes. Okay, yes, what was it, Malvina Reynolds song? You think you've hit bottom? Oh, no, there's a low below the low you know. You think you've hit bottom? Oh, no. He goes on and on. He puts, uh, let's see, he says there is an immoral sense that might even be below the moral sense. Says the Frenchman has that one. Anyway, uh, he's trying to comfort us. I'm not sure, uh. Oh, he goes on and on about uh, the dreadful state of man's health. He blames us for some of these problems. Um, I love most of all, especially in his, his uh, diary of Adam and Eve, his description of the beauty and utility of all the other animals. Uh, as we know, an antelope is certainly prettier than we are. Uh, how inferior man's sight, smell, hearing, sense of locality. The condor sees a corpse at five miles. The bloodhound follows a scent that is two days old. The robin hears the earthworm burrowing his course under the ground. The cat, deported in a clothes basket, can find its way home again through twenty miles of country which it has never seen. And for style, he says, look at the Bengal tiger, that ideal of grace, beauty, physical perfection, and majesty. Then, look at man, poor thing. The animal of the wig, the glass eye, the pasteboard nose, the ear trumpet, the porcelain teeth, silver windpipe, wooden leg. <laughs> A creature that is mended and patched all over from top to bottom. Hmm. <laughs> And he goes on to talk about how we can get renewals of all this bric-a-brac in the next world. Uh, and then, yes, our intellect, our stupendous superiority. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth. It's a little paperback. I found it. There's several new editions of Mark Twain's unpublished works. I recommend them. I was going to read you the wonderful bits about the superiority of the 
female, um, well, let's call it woman's sexual um, talents, uh, the uh, capacity of the female, which he puts, oh, at hundreds of times better than that of the human male. But I find that even... <laughs> Even now in the 21st century, it's much too, uh, what's the word, uh, naughty, I guess naughty, um, for us to read on the radio. Can you believe that, that Mark Twain says that female sexuality is so, so much more in, what is it, um, yeah, a hundred to one, he says, uh, <laughs> Maybe one of these days I I will read you some of those um some of those bits because I think we should try to remember that it is woman uh who is made for pleasure. Uh anyway, uh Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth. I wanted to tell you I'm not gonna have time today to talk about all the movies, but let me just skip through this list so that I can I can go back to them later. But I think that Help, the movie The Help, is going to win the Oscar. I wanted to remind you, there's a documentary that I'm trying to get for our next marathon. I want to give a copy, says a, a, a premium for our next um, subscription drive. It's called South of the Border by Oliver Stone. I've watched it several times, and it's a terrific documentary all about Latin America. Going to have another spring, folks, yes. <laughs> Actually, uh, we know that um, uh, it's a lot more than just spring down there. Uh, many, many seasons, but... Uh, South of the Border is all about Hugo Chavez and his contemporaries in Latin America, all the heads of state. Uh, last night on BBC TV, Hugo Chavez looked so grim that I felt sorry for him. Uh, politics is obviously lethal to every man's soul as well as his body. He has uh, apparently recovered from his bout with cancer, but it's left him shaken. Uh, he was shown with um, Castro and and some of the others. Uh, let's see, that was 9 January 2012. Back home in Venezuela, he was playing the drums and dancing and giving those speeches. You know, he's like Castro. He likes to talk to folks for hours at a time. Uh, now, Oliver Stone is in the documentary talking to all these folks. It's definitely worth your time. South of the Border. You may have seen it. It was made, oh, I don't know, maybe maybe three years ago. Five heads of state, Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil. <laughs> yes. Feminists. Can you imagine? Feminists and indigenous persons, heads of state in Latin America. All the uh, seasons, spring, winter, fall, happening in Latin America. Portents, folks, portents. North America uh, is going to be inundated. 
I hope it's not exactly like the uh, EU model. The nations in Europe are constantly at war. I hope they've recovered from that. But uh, with any luck, Latin America will get its act together and uh, learn from history. And we will wake up. We will wake up uh, in a decade or two and find that the Americas are all of a piece. I will be back on the air next Tuesday at the same time. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Habibi, a poetic story of forbidden love set in Gaza. A film about human rights challenging the stereotype of the oppressed Arab woman. Habibi won Best Picture and Best Actress Awards at the Dubai International Film Festival. And producer Susan Youssef was named 25th of the 100 Most Powerful Arab Women. The Bay Area premiere of Habibi will be on Thursday, May 10th, 7 p.m., one night only, at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, 3200 Grand Avenue, in a benefit for the Middle East Children's Alliance, co-sponsored by the Arab Film Festival. Tickets are $10 and the theater is wheelchair accessible. For info, please visit www. .org or call us at 510-548-0542. Habibi. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's just about 3.30. Stay tuned next for Free Speech Radio News after this short music break.